The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Podcast. Welcome to the Free Speech Coalition podcast. My name is Patrick Korsh, and today I'm joined by former president for the American Civil Liberties Union, professor at law at the New York Law School, Professor Nadine Strassen. I'm also joined in studio by Stephen Franks, public lawyer and former MP and spokesperson for the Free Speech Coalition. Good morning to both of you. Nadine, also, in case I forget later, I also want to thank you from many of us here for your book, the why we should resist hate uh, it with hate speech why we should resist it with free speech not censorship it for us not really steeped in the u.s um, jurisprudence on this area it's just such a, an accessible and really easily readable summary of, of of the law that supports and justifies and explains uh, your first amendment Thank you both so much. I really am looking for, have been looking forward to this very much as well. I, and thank you for asking about my book because I know that there have been controversies in uh, New Zealand as well as in so many other countries about so-called hate speech. And I, I say so-called because every country defines it somewhat differently and it is an inherently vague subjective concept that for all practical purposes ends up coming down to whatever speech is subjectively viewed as hateful or hated by whoever the enforcing authority is, which is why it's a concept that inevitably is enforced in a way that is arbitrary at best and discriminatory at worst. And by the way, we see that no matter who the enforcing authority is, whether it's a government official in a country such as New Zealand, which has laws on point, or whether it's a university official, as we see in the United States on many campuses, including private campuses that are not bound by the First Amendment. Uh, we see it if the enforcing official is a somebody who's employed by a social media company or an algorithm that used by a social media company to enforce their restrictions on on so-called hate speech. Overall, disproportionately, these uh, restrictions are enforced against any viewpoint that's unpopular, any speaker or group that's unpopular, and what tends to get suppressed are challenges to the status quo, challenges to prevailing orthodoxy, and most tragically, expression by and on behalf of the very minority groups who are the intended beneficiaries of these laws. And I think what's so interesting uh, about the research that I did for this book, Patrick and Stephen, is I looked at the enforcement record in countries around the world, including uh, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Canada, uh, European countries, South Africa, and, and it, the, the pattern is universal, that because these laws are at best ineffective in countering hatred and promoting equality, surely extremely 
important goals for all of us who champion human rights. Uh, But these laws are at best ineffective in promoting those goals and at worst counterproductive. And that's why I was surprised to see, I shouldn't have been, but uh, I was surprised to see that human rights activists all over the world are protesting and objecting to hate speech laws and urging movement in the direction of the American approach that um, does not allow government to suppress speech solely because its message is deemed hateful or hated. The reason why I say I, I was surprised is that you constantly hear references to so-called American exceptionalism as if we're just, you know, extraordinarily radical and aberrational in our uh, supposedly excessive support for free speech. And don't get me wrong, uh, I would not at all be embarrassed if we're exceptional in our protection of, of individual liberty and, and human rights. But I think it's, it's really important to underscore that uh, champions of human rights who have actually looked at how these laws actually function are, are equally full-throated in their opposition to censoring hate speech. It is not only an American human rights activist perspective. The other point I want to make about how universal the arguments that I put forward are uh, is a legal point, and it's one that I didn't really stress very much in my initial book, which came out last year, but an updated paperback is coming out next year, and I will make that point more strongly, that the core pertinent principles of U.S. free speech law that do not allow government to censor speech solely because its message is hated or hateful, uh, but rather speech with a hated or hateful message along with speech with any other message uh, can be punished only when it satisfies what's often called the emergency principle. That is when in a particular context, the speech directly causes certain specific imminent serious harm such as a true threat, such as targeted bullying or harassment, such as intentional incitement of imminent violence. Those core interrelated principles are also reflected in international human rights law, in particular the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, in particular Article 19, which is the provision that protects freedom of speech. And what is not nearly as well known as it should be is that um, the authoritative interpretation of that covenant by the pertinent United Nations body is very speech protective and has said that any restriction on speech has to be, has to in effect satisfy the emergency principle and also has to be narrowly tailored, cannot be unduly vague, cannot be overly broad. Now, many people know that in addition to Article 19's protection of free speech, Article 20 also requires that signatory countries 
outlaw hate speech. And that's why if you just read that provision, you would think, okay, well, there is an exception. Uh, Hate speech is not protected. But what is not nearly as well known as it should be is that the authoritative interpretation of Article 20 says that any hate speech restriction has to comply with the narrow standards, the strict standards of restrictions under Article 19, namely that it can't be based just on a hated viewpoint. It has to satisfy the emergency principle. It has to be narrowly tailored. It has to be necessary to promote a goal of uh, countervailing importance, and it has to be proportional. And I've read uh, articles by experienced international human rights lawyers who have analyzed hate speech laws of, and who have speech restrictions of social media companies and have concluded that they violate international human rights principles. One of the things that you said there was that they're counterproductive. I thought one of the fascinating things in your book, given that your father was in Buchenwald and also that... Um, you, your your presidency would have been overshadowed by the Skokie controversy and the tensions it created within the ACLU. I, I really appreciated your update on how things had gone in Skokie since and the community that had been so mm. so concerned there. Would you just like to explain a little bit about that? Because it it, it's, it struck me that your your positive examples of things that can be usefully done to combat hate speech, you were really making the point that if you have hate speech law, they don't appear, they don't emerge. And if you had lost on lost the Skokie litigation, which very few New Zealanders will now know about, um, you, you could well have had a, a much worse outcome for the people who, for for those who combat Nazism and the neo-Nazis could have been advanced. And so let me first take the opportunity to say what the Skokie case is. Many people in the United States know it because it is kind of, it epitomizes the very strong protection of free speech in this country. Again, I have to stress that I believe that it's consistent with international human rights law as well, uh, that no matter how hated or reviled the message may be, that that alone is not a justification for suppressing it. And in fact, the effort to suppress it will simply be counterproductive because it will uh, create free speech martyrs out of the hate mongers who are uh, sought to be censored, and it draws attention to them and even sympathy for them that they otherwise would never have received. So Skokie, Illinois, is a town near Chicago, Illinois, in the heartland of America, that happens to have a very large Jewish population. And when the case took place in 1977, it was soon enough after World War II and the Holocaust that many people who lived in Skokie were actually Holocaust survivors. That is why a small group of neo-Nazis decided that they wanted to demonstrate in Skokie, because, of course, that gets the most attention. It's why people who are against abortion demonstrate outside abortion clinics, right? 
And uh, interestingly enough, in the past, the Jewish leaders, uh, community leaders in Skokie, as well as uh, political officials, had had a strategy of always giving permits to hate monger groups and neo-Nazi groups because they understood that that was a way to not amplify attention. Uh, But for some reason, on this particular uh, instance, there was a there was a group of Holocaust survivors that decided that they would seek to deny the permit to pressure the government officials to deny the permit. And boy, did that boomerang. Uh, it became an international sensation. The litigation went on for two years. The Nazis were getting, they ultimately, um, you know, won in the court of law in that the ACLU, which represented them, was successful, not surprisingly, because this is such a core free speech principle that they did have the right to demonstrate despite their loathsome message. But far more important a victory for them than the victory in the court of law was the public attention that they got for two years being in the news all over the United States and indeed all over the world. Uh, They had applied for a permit, I I reread it in writing my book, uh, that to demonstrate for 30 minutes and they said that they would have 30 people, which I'm sure was an exaggeration. Um, they had, it was a very, very tiny group. And just think about it. They would have had absolutely no impact at all if that permit had just been granted. So there's this adverse impact. Uh, those who are trying to silence the message through censorship end up instead amplifying the message. And, and this is something that's happened on many college campuses as well in the United States, so that uh, organizations such as the Anti-Defamation League and the Southern Poverty Law Center, which are on the forefront of countering hatred and hate mongers, they are advising college students and others. We know that it feels morally satisfying to try to censor these people. We know it you know, makes you feel good about yourself to disrupt them or to have a violent protest or a confrontational protest. But if what you really want to do is be effective in trying to mute their message, then please resist the temptation to engage in those kinds of counterproductive strategies. And and the point that you're alluding to, Stephen, is that um, the surviving Jews from the Holocaust in Skokie were so galvanized by this experience. They had been, uh, like many Holocaust survivors, very loath to reflect about and to speak about their experiences publicly. Uh, but they decided that they ought to uh, they ought to share their memories and create a legacy and create information and education. So they raised money and founded a Holocaust Museum and Education Center in Skokie, and uh, which has been visited by you know thousands of school children and others uh, in in a way that uh, I think is the most effective strategy to inoculate future generations against it, um, engaging in hateful attitudes, uh, let alone hateful actions. 
also something really positive and constructive encountering hate came out of the episode of hearing and, and seeing hate mongers in action. Nadine, you write in your book that um, a, a lot of times, a lot of these hate speech laws actually hurt the um, the groups that they're actually meant to protect. I know that um, you had written uh, one example that uh, after hate speech um, policy was uh, written on campus, I can't remember the name of the university, I think it was uh, Irvine, um, that uh, opposed to protect uh, racial minorities were actually used against against racial minorities by uh, by white students after they had um, they said that they they had been uh, racially discriminated against. Um, I was wondering if you could expand on on, on examples like that. Yes, and th that particular example was, happened to be the University of Michigan, and the reason I know that is because usually universities have some privilege to not disclose their records about how their hate speech codes, so-called, are enforced. But because the ACLU went to court to challenge this code as violating the First Amendment, we got access to the enforcement records. And uh, sure enough, as consistent with the pattern around the world and throughout history, minority groups, including racial uh, and ethnic minorities, were disproportionately punished under anti-hate speech laws. Uh, and the most recent example comes from uh, two studies by two teams of researchers on algorithms and on social media. They both had their studies published in August of this year at a very prestigious conference somewhere in Europe, a conference on computational linguistics is the field. And both of those studies showed that the social media uh, rules against hate speech were enforced much more strongly against African-American speakers um, than against other speakers. I mean, by a very, very wide margin, um, more than 1.2 times a difference in one study and twice as often in the other study. And, uh, you know, the book gives many examples, as you say, but I think it's really important, uh, Patrick, to look at the underlying reason why we can expect these patterns. And the reason is exactly the reason that motivates people to call for censoring hate speech. That we live in societies that still reflect racial and other forms of discrimination. Studies in my country certainly have shown that anti-drug laws and other criminal laws are disproportionately enforced against members of minority groups, that there is systemic and structural racism that is baked into the criminal justice system, other study and, and the civil justice system as well. Other studies have documented so-called implicit or unconscious bias on the part of us individuals who have been acculturated in these 
societies. And, you know, the good news is that we're working very, very hard to counter and overturn these problems. But I'm very proud and optimistic about that. But in the meantime, why in the world would we hand over to a criminal justice system or a civil justice system uh, that has these biases baked in and even more discretionary power than the power to enforce anti-drug laws, namely the power to decide which speech uh, should be deemed to be sufficiently hateful in order to be punished. And uh, I've looked at every single law that has been written or proposed all over the world throughout history, and there, the, the, the terms are irreducibly vague and overbroad. I mean, just think about it. We're talking about an emotion, an attitude. And so you find the laws consistently using terms such as demeaning, dehumanizing, degrading, disparaging, and no two people can possibly agree as to which particular expression satisfies those um, inherently vague concepts. So let me give you another example. Uh, it comes from that University of Michigan case, and that that hate speech code, interestingly enough, was written by law professors at the University of Michigan who were experts on First Amendment law. So they did their utmost to write a standard that would be as narrow as possible and uh, to avoid problems of undue vagueness and to try to comply with the emergency principle. Uh, But they ended up using the same synonyms for hate that are used elsewhere. Uh, and, and, And so in the oral argument, the lawyer for the university defending the hate speech code had to acknowledge what is true in all of our countries, uh, that the mere fact that expression is offensive is not enough to justify punishing it, right? Even the European Court of Human Rights, which I think is uh, shockingly, you know, insufficiently protected free speech, but even that court has said that the mere fact that the speech is offensive is not never a justification for punishing it. It has to be hateful and uh, disparaging and degrading and dehumanizing and so forth. And those were some of the words that were used in the Michigan Code. So the judge asks the university's lawyer in oral argument, well, counsel, how do you distinguish offensive speech, which you say you agree cannot be punished, from dehumanizing or demeaning or degrading speech, which you say can be punished and the lawyer's answer was very carefully very carefully yeah mm. <laughs> it's, it's, so, we know it when we you see know, it funny. <laughs> exactly a very 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 good analogy and so we can predict that once there is inevitable discretion on the part of those who enforce the standards, of course we can predict that disproportionately the discretion is going to uh, be disadvantaging those who are uh, relatively marginalized, disempowered, unpopular, dissident, and so forth. Mm. I was very interested in in the number of, of examples you found in European jurisprudence where the law very quickly or almost um, immediately became um, used against the kinds of groups that normally call for them. You know, the the way in which France has uh, pursued Palestinian activists 
or yeah. people who are concerned about Zionism and the way in which in the UK uh, it's been used to essentially attack mainstream religious views that were very um, that people have been able to deal with without feeling degraded or their dignity diminished for decades and and in ways which would have protected if they had been in existence um, during the time when people were rightly attacking the privileges of the Catholic Church, they would have protected the church and made the church uh, possibly invulnerable to some of the cleansing that it's had. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, just about uh, less than two weeks ago, I did a supposed debate, I'll tell you why it wasn't really much of a debate, in London for an international conference of media lawyers. And the debate was supposedly on uh, hate speech versus free speech. And the reason I say supposed debate was the British law professor that whom I debated, who does support censoring hate speech as a matter of principle and jurisprudential philosophy, he acknowledged from the get-go that he completely agreed with me that these laws are ineffective and that they are counterproductive and that they are especially bad from the perspective of equality concerns. Uh, so that's what I say. It wasn't much of a debate. I suppose if you're very philosophical, which he apparently is, and I, I like him and I don't mean to be disrespectful. I respect his jurisprudence. Uh, uh, he, so he's basically saying as a symbolic matter, uh, the country, should, the government should go on record with its opposition to hate speech. And that's the point that is Served by these laws, um, but he didn't try to argue that the laws don't do harm. In other words, he acknowledged that they do harm. So, uh, you know, even putting aside the negative symbolism of empowering government to pick and choose certain ideas that are are hated, which I, I think there's at least as much of negative symbolism there as positive, um, there's actual harm that comes from, from these laws. In addition to censoring unpopular views on the part of members of the public, including people with deeply held religious beliefs or people who are advocating for various social justice causes. Um, the book does give examples, as you mentioned, of uh, activists on behalf of Palestinian rights, activists on behalf of LGBTQ rights from the United States, uh, an example of groups that are uh, too frequently censored under social media hate speech laws because we don't have uh, government laws in our country thanks to the First Amendment, but the social media, that's where the power really is because that's where most of the speech and most of the censorship is taking place. And, and who's getting censored? Black Lives Matter activists, pipeline protesters, other crusaders for racial and, and social justice. So it, it's kind of ironic that in this country and I think around the world, most of the support for censorship comes from those on the left end of the spectrum, but they certainly are bearing the brunt of these laws. Glenn Greenwald wrote a piece a couple of years ago, a progressive left-way leftist center journalist, right, writes for the Guardian, 
after the Charlottesville white supremacist demonstration in this country, there was an eruption of calls for increasing censorship of hate speech. And, and Glenn Greenwald wrote a column in which he said, you know, beware of what you wish for. You leftists who are calling for censorship, imagine that's what, what's going to be censored is racist speech and white supremacist speech and homophobic speech and Islamophobic speech. And yes, maybe that will be censored. But let me give you examples from your European countries of all of the speech that you like that is also subject to to censorship. Hmm. Have you have you um, had a look at the the so-called Christchurch call? Our prime minister is running around the world at the moment, uh, getting uh, a lot of effusive praise for a call for something that's pretty incoherent. I can't really tell what it is, but it's an encouragement to social media and governments to collaborate on developing a censorship code. Is is that something that's come across your your, uh, radar. Oh, Listen. absolutely. Uh, yes, I and uh, other individuals and organizations that fight for free speech in cyberspace have been extremely alarmed about the Christchurch call. Uh, on the positive side, I have some of my friends who are active with uh, the Electronic Frontier found issue and um, some other similar organizations actually met with her in Paris and they said that she seemed very sympathetic and uh, you know listened attentively attentively and respectfully to their concerns but uh, putting the vagueness aside it's very clear that what is being called for is government to put pressure more or less directly on social media companies to uh, censor uh, a very broad, vague swath of speech, uh, including hate speech, but also including so-called terrorist speech uh, and other, other vague categories, equally vague subjective categories of speech that will... Uh, deputize these powerful private sector companies to serve as extremely powerful censors. And I'm very nervous about governance censorship, to say the least, but I think it's even worse if I have to choose. I mean, at least in government is theoretically in our democratic republics, um, theoretically accountable to we the people. But if you have a private sector company, it's only accountable to its shareholders. And uh, I don't want them to be wielding this sensorial power. Right. Strictly, that, strictly we're always on the, in the, in the sort of the... Liberty side, we've thought, well, at least their interest in serving their shareholders in a competitive market means there should be cracks and gaps and people can still get through. But what I see is is an unholy situation where government is encouraging collusion to make sure there are no gaps and to eliminate potential competition. And what we've seen in our country, not only as a result of the Christchurch call, but independent pressures coming from all across the political spectrum. Our Congress is so deeply divided on so many issues, but they're all ganging up against speech of various sorts that they consider controversial. And as a result of pressure that they've put on uh, the giant social media companies to do more uh, about uh, the, the the three major categories of controversial expression are hate speech, 
terrorist speech and disinformation or misinformation. And it's uh, so as a result of that, a number of these companies have formed a consortium where uh, if one of them creates an algorithm or I guess they call it a hash for determining a certain speech has terrorist content, then all of the others use the very same shortcut. So it's, and this is not, and, and, and it's all done in a completely non-transparent way. That's another added disadvantage that the private enforcement has above and beyond the government, at least when the government's doing it. And I'm not advocating government censorship, but just to say private censorship is even more worrisome uh, when the government does it. At least there is some transparency. At least there is some due process, uh, a right of appeal, right, a right of notice. But when the private sector companies do it, it's completely non-transparent, completely unaccountable, no due process, no meaningful right of appeal. And and then so to have a consortium consortium of them ganging up together just magnifies those problems uh, because um, in one fell swoop, you're being censored across multiple platforms. Some of the circles that I... I occupy share that concern, um, private censorship being um, even worse than uh, public censorship. Some of the solutions that I I have heard been floated around were um, a change to the Constitution, uh, holding private firms uh, accountable, that they have to um, keep speech open. Um, I guess this means making Facebook, you know, beholden to the First Amendment or Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. a, a derivative of the First Amendment. Would you be in support of something like that, or do you think that's that, that's overkill? I, I think it's well intended, but I think it would do more harm than good. And I, uh, first of all, I do support, I'm not anti-capitalist. I do support free markets as well as uh, in, in goods and services as well as ideas. I do believe that these companies have their own First Amendment, free speech, editorial-type rights. Uh, and when I look at how similar policies were enforced in the United States with respect to the broadcast media under the so-called fairness doctrine, it, it, it sounds okay in theory, but again, it just allows government to enforce um, standards that ultimately turn on political considerations. So. The fairness doctrine was forced enforced in a way that was targeting uh, broadcasters who were seen as not sympathetic to the administration in power. Nixon administration was a great example of punishing broadcasters who were critical of Nixon's policies. And I can imagine the same thing happening uh, under a regime of Uh, holding these, trying to hold these social media companies accountable under the First Amendment. Uh, My ideal uh, approach would be, and and it's been advocated by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is international. To best my knowledge, it has branches in Australia and New Zealand, among many other countries. Um, The Center for Democracy and Technology, something called Access Now. These are all international organizations that advocate for free speech and other human rights in the online sphere, they, they have all called for 
user empowerment, creating technological options that will allow each of us as an end user to decide what our own filtering uh, screens or standards are going to be, whether it be all no holds barred, anything can come through, uh, or whether it be the Christian coalition, so you, you know that you could you could harness the the um, filtering programs of other organizations that would reflect your values. And I actually had a conversation recently with uh, Facebook, to its credit, has been doing a lot of consultation, including with free speech advocates all over the world. It's consistent. Look, I'm, I'm not uh, naive. I understand that it's consistent with Facebook's business interests to be responsive to the various kinds of criticisms it's getting. And, uh, but I also do think that uh, a, a lot of, the, I mean, everybody I've met that works there is, is genuinely concerned about free speech as well. Um, and so I've been one of the so-called experts who's been consulted um, quite a bit in the last few months by various Facebook folks who are putting together a so-called oversight board. Mark Zuckerberg announced this last fall that would be independent of Facebook, largely independent to examine particular content moderation decisions. Anyway, just a few days ago, I had my latest consultation with a couple of them. They were very um, supportive of the idea of having a technology that would empower end users to make our own determinations with the aid of other third parties, and that seems to be consistent with their business interests as well as with individual liberty, right? Because uh, short of that, they're never going to satisfy anybody because they are, no matter, I recently, I've testified in Congress several times with, uh, uh, on, on oversight of, uh, of social media companies with representatives of those companies, and Every member of Congress, from the most left-wing to the most right-wing, is complaining, uh, making two complaints to these companies. Number one, you are censoring too much of X, you know, fill in the X for whatever your values are, and you're not censoring enough of Y. So they're never going to satisfy anybody, let alone everybody. Mm. And I think the only way they could do it would be if we can make our own decisions. So. It may be wishful thinking, but I think it's worth worth pressuring for that. The other thing that I, the other strategy that uh, they they do seem amenable to as well, is one that has been articulated by a number of international human rights lawyers and and human rights advocates, including David Kay, who's the UN's special rapporteur for freedom of expression. A couple of, I think it's a couple of years ago, David wrote a report in which he urged these companies to volunteer, voluntarily comply with international human rights free speech standards, the ones that I outlined earlier, in a position that's been pressed uh, quite forcefully by uh, you know, not only international bodies such as the UN, but international human rights organizations such as Human Rights Watch and Article 19. And again, the Facebook folks and Twitter and Google have all uh, made positive um, 
responses. They haven't made a full-throated commitment, but in spirit, they have supported that approach. This has been part one of the Free Speech Coalition's interview with Professor Nadine Strassen. You can listen to part two on any of the platforms the Free Speech Coalition podcast is available on. This has been the Free Speech Coalition podcast. See you next time.